You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded from our home studios. We recently recorded a series of interviews from the American Bar Association's mid-year meeting in San Diego, California. While we are out there, one of our interviews got away from us due to some travel difficulties, but not to worry, we are here to finish what we started, and joining me now, I have two very special guests who have graciously agreed to reschedule our time together and also put up with a little technical flub at the beginning of the show, so I want to thank you guys for joining us. So first up, from Orange, California, we have Dr. John Eastman from the Chapman University Fowler School of Law. Welcome to the show, Dr. Eastman. Thanks very much for having me on. Absolutely. And in addition, we have joining us Mr. Thomas Sainz, who's the president of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Welcome to the show, Mr. Sainz. Thank you. Glad to join you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, before we get started, you know, just a little bit more about yourselves, uh, your work and what do you do? So, Dr. Eastman, would you mind just giving us a little bit more? Well, I'm a former uh, Supreme Court law clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, I founded in 1999 the uh, Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, the public interest law firm uh, affiliated with the Claremont Institute. And our mission is to recover the principles of the American founding in, uh, in our constitutional jurisprudence. And we've been involved in more than 115 cases before the Supreme Court of the United States over the last 15 years, uh, addressing every, you know, almost every major constitutional issue that the court has confronted. And Mr. Sines. I'm the president and general counsel of MALDEF, Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, which is a national civil rights legal organization whose mission is to promote the civil and constitutional rights of all Latinos living in the United States through that work in the areas of employment, education, immigrant rights, and most importantly for today, voting rights. Uh, we are often involved as amici and as representatives of parties in cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, and this is a very uh, a very interesting day uh, to talk about uh, uh, constitutional law issues. Um, obviously, we need to uh, make mention that uh, Justice Antonin Scalia passed away this weekend, and uh, that'll obviously be in our minds as we move forward to, uh, through this issue. So wanted to go ahead and just sort of break into it. So uh, you were both speaking at an event uh, that was titled, uh, Evanwell v. Abbott, Should Electoral Districts Be Drawn by Counting Only Voters Rather Than All Residents counted by the decennial census. And, and this was an event that was sponsored by the Commission on Hispanic Legal Rights and Responsibilities. So I guess uh, as a good place to start, uh, could we get a volunteer to give me the 50,000 foot as to what that speaking event was about? Sure. Well, I, I was there. Unfortunately, John's uh, travel difficulties prevented him from participating in person. Uh, it was a discussion of the case Evanwell versus Abbott that is currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. It was argued in early December so it is slated to be determined before the end of the court's current term. That's absent any dramatic effect from the passing of Justice Scalia. The case is comes to the court directly from a three-judge district court. So it's on direct appeal. The court noted probable jurisdiction at the end of its last term and heard the case. As I mentioned in early December, the case presents the question whether state Senate districts in Texas, though obviously its implications extend well beyond the specific facts of the case, but whether those state Senate districts were wrongly drawn after the 2010 census because Texas equalized those state Senate districts based on total population rather than voter, po voter population as the plaintiffs urge. 
Okay, and I guess that uh, that that sort of leads into the first uh, part of the discussion. So obviously, the the passing of Justice Scalia um, that that's going to have an impact on the court. And so, what does the court do in a situation like this? Uh, my understanding uh, from our talk just before the interview started that this was a decision that was expected in April. Is it going to delay the decision uh, after this, or, or how does that work? Well, there there are a lot of different scenarios, and and this is one of those cases where the lineup of the justices. Uh, it's not as self-evident as some of the other more ideologically driven cases are. For example, in addition to the voting rights uh, case where, uh, issue, which uh, there might well be an ideological divide on the court, uh, you also have a question of federalism and how much deference is due to the states to define their own redistricting practices. Uh, and that cuts across the ideological spectrums, particularly with Justice Scalia, in a very interesting way in this case. So I think uh, predictions of this case being 5-4 one way or the other before uh, Justice Scalia's untimely death over the weekend uh, were we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're very hard to sustain. Um, nevertheless, if we end up with a decision four to four, the court can take two uh, routes, and, and it has done so in, in, in its history, uh, uh, taken both of these. Uh, much more common when they have a justice who passes away midterm is for the court to wait for a replacement judges and reschedule oral argument in the case um, uh, once they have a full complement again. But the court has routinely, when a, when they have a 4-4 split because of a recusal of a justice, uh, they do what they call affirm the decision of the lower court by an equally divided court. Uh, and that, that they could decide to take that uh, uh, path here as well. Uh, and so uh, a 4-4 four four split vote where they simply affirm the lower court decision uh, would uphold the decision of the lower court here in favor of Texas uh, drawing its districts based on total population rather than voting age or voter eligible population or citizen population or some other number. Okay, I was reading uh, in the paper this weekend that uh, uh, some of the, uh, the, the the nominations to replace uh, Justice uh, Scalia, uh, that's going to be, uh, I guess, I guess stopped or they're going to try to stop any nomination. So I guess, you know, President Obama is going to want to obviously get someone into the position as quickly as possible. So what predictions for process are you, are you see coming down the line for that? In this case, I think the effect on Evanwell would potentially be minimal because the case has already been submitted and argued in, in December. So e- even if the president nominates someone and that person is appropriately acted upon, uh, with the usual uh, alacrity, uh, that person wouldn't be able to sit and hear this case unless it is, and decide this case unless it is rescheduled for argument. And then that's only likely if if there appears to be some sort of four-four split. I agree with John that that may not be the case uh, in in this particular circumstance. It may also be the case that this is one where the justices decide a four-four. Uh, affirmance without decision, if you will, uh, of the district court is the right way to go. As I mentioned, this is a case that went up directly from the district court. It did not go through the Court of Appeals. Uh, It is one in a series of cases. The most recent was only a few years ago, Leapak versus the city of Irving, also out of Texas, but that went through the Fifth Circuit because it was a challenge to a local redistricting on the same basis rather than statewide redistricting. So I think even if the state Senate, the United States Senate rather, 
uh, does what its constitutional duty is, which is to pass upon a nomination from President Obama, uh, there's little chance that it could affect this case, at least in the immediate term. There's one more scenario here that I think it's important to talk about, and that is, since this case was argued all the way back in December, two full months ago, it's quite possible uh, that internally the court has already reached a disposition of the case. Uh, and the precedent uh, for that uh, is that if the court, if the if the, uh, the the justice who passed away during the term had participated in the hearing and disposition of the case, then the then the case is, uh, the decision is issued with his vote counting. Uh, the court did that back in 1946, the last time it had this situation when Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone died uh, during the term. And a decision issued a week later uh, by the court uh, included his vote in the outcome of the case, uh, noting that he had participated in the hearing and the disposition of the case, uh, what have you. And so, so we have a third uh, scenario there that in this case and possibly in the Friedrichs uh, California Teachers Association union dues case, uh, the court could very well have already reached a disposition of the case, and we, we may have uh, uh, a, a decision that has nine votes on the court even uh, after the untimely passing of Justice Scalia. So when does that come out? Is that something that the court holds on to uh, for a certain period of time, or, or how, do, how does that come out? Well, they're working on opinions. Uh, they're working on dissents, sometimes concurrences and what have you. Uh, uh, even after all those opinions are done, they send it down to the, the clerk's office for a very careful uh, editing and checking and, and crossing the T's and dotting the I's and getting the slip opinions printed and what have you. Uh, so, uh, uh, And until all of that's done, uh, we don't know what the disposition of the case was for, from outside, but but uh, internal to the court, they there there is a disposition of the case. So we don't know whether uh, Evanwell already fit, fits within that or not. Yeah, I would have to say that realistically, for that to apply, they would have to have been pretty pretty close to the end of that whole process, which is possible on something that was argued in early December. But there's no way of knowing how how close they were to to finalizing that whole process. The reason it would have to be close to final in that process is. You know, justices can change their mind, change how they want their views expressed. So we'd have to be pretty close to uh, on the verge of hearing a decision in any event, I would say, uh, which, again, is possible. It was long enough ago that it was submitted that they may be, have been at that, that point. So, Mr. Sines, uh, you, know, you said that this, this case bypassed the, the Court of Appeals. Uh, and, and so I guess how rare is that for a case like this to just go straight to the Supreme Court? Well, as older lawyers will remember, there used to be lots of cases that started out in a three-judge district court comprised of two district court judges and one appellate court judge. Uh, It used to be anything that challenged the constitutionality of a state statute. Now, that changed some time ago, so really the only cases that follow that somewhat unusual procedure are those that involve statewide uh, redistricting, as, as this one does, because it challenges the state Senate redistricting following the 2010 census. So in this day and age, it's actually pretty rare. But not rare in in voting rights cases like this. It is the norm in these kind of cases. That's correct. Now, I, I understand that, uh, that that you you both were, uh, I guess, opposed in viewpoints on, on this particular case when you were making your presentations at the ABA mid-year meeting in San Diego. And so I guess uh, my understanding of this, and I'm going to paraphrase it, my, my understanding of this, this case is about how to redistrict it. Do you do it according to the population 
or do you do it according to eligible uh, voters in, in a given district? And so is that a good paraphrase for what the, just kind of the, the, the basics of what this case is about? Yes, that's fair. Okay, so I, if you don't mind me asking, uh, which side of the fence do either one of you stand on? Can I, can I start with you, Mr. Mr. Sines? Sure. Uh, well, Maldef, on behalf of a uh, number of voters in Texas, sought to intervene in Evanwell when it was before the district court, but our intervention was denied because the three-judge court acted so swiftly to dismiss the plaintiff's claim. We support the state of Texas and drawing lines based on total population. We disagree with the plaintiff's contention that the 14th Amendment requires that states and other locali- and localities in drawing electoral districts use voter population rather than total population. We think that total population use, which is the ubiquitous practice in the United States today, uh, is constitutionally not only appropriate but required. The 14th Amendment itself, in its only discussion of how districts might be allocated, if you will, states explicitly that in apportioning House of Representatives, U.S. House of Representatives districts among the states after the U.S. Census, it is to be done on total population. What that means is the state of Texas involved here was the big winner, if you will, after the 2010 Census, gaining four U.S. House of Representatives seats those seats were earned based on total population of that state versus other states. But the plaintiffs would then argue, even though those House districts were earned by total population, once you draw those U.S. House of Representatives districts in the state of Texas, you then must use something other than total population. That inconsistency, the apportionment anomaly, if you will, is very hard to get around. So it's also very hard to get around the fact that the 14th Amendment does in its very language, distinguish between citizens and persons, guaranteeing privileges and immunities to citizens, but guaranteeing equal protection, which is the clause involved here, to all persons, not just citizens, not just voters. Uh, The strong, strong suggestion is uh, that what all of the states and localities that draw districts today have chosen to do is the constitutionally appropriate choice, which is to use total population in equalizing electoral districts. And Dr. Eastman. Yeah, so uh, the other side of this, which I represent and filed a brief on behalf of our Constitutional Litigation Center uh, in support of it, uh, picks up on a phrase from the 14th Amendment, but also from Article 1 of the Constitution that Tom omits, which is total population. And then it says, excluding Indians not taxed. Uh, And it's pretty clear what the founders had in mind and what the principle that they were trying to reflect with that language. And I think it's a principle that is reflected in the Supreme Court precedent in the landmark case of Reynolds versus Sims that set the one person, one vote uh, uh, voting requirement in the first place. And that is that people are not members of the body politic, not citizens, uh, do not have a hand or a say in choosing who our representatives are. Uh, uh, It would, you know, be as crazy to let, you know, people from France uh, vote for our president uh, as, uh, as to apportion our representatives based on, on people from France who happen to be temporarily here in the United States. Um, and, and the founders, the, the, the issue was that the founders confronted is what do you do with Native Americans who were living in the United States but owed allegiance and were members of a, a separate nation, a separate sovereignty, their tribes. And the, and the Constitution's language specifically says we don't count them because they are not citizens. 
James Wilson, who's you know kind of one of the leading drafters of the Constitution, says elections ought to be equal. Uh, they are when a given number of citizens in one part of the state choose as many representatives as are chosen by the same number of citizens in the other part of the state. And, and you know, so that kind of is, is the defining thing. Uh, when Reynolds versus Sims uh, uh, applying the Equal Protection Clause, uh, uh, and I agree with, with Tom that it says persons, not citizens, uh, but the court has regularly said that, you know, we, we treat all persons equally under the Equal Protection Clause, except when the issue involves a democratic self-governance, and then the distinction between citizens and non-citizens is critically important, given the nature of our regime and how our government responds uh, to the vote of citizens. And it's citizens that are represented, it's not people who are uh, in this country, for, uh, uh, whether temporarily, lawfully, or unlawfully, uh, from other nations. Um, when Reynolds versus Sims was issued, and it just said one person, one vote. Uh, throughout that decision, it focuses on the need to have a, f- quote, fair and effective representation for all citizens. Um, equal numbers of voters can vote for proportionate equal number of officials. Uh, so the entire opinion, even though a couple of times it, it more loosely uses just the language persons or population, the entire opinion is based on the fact of the need to have an equal representation district to district of citizens because it's the citizens that are sovereign authority in this country and that are responsible for choosing and directing uh, their, their government. And so uh, when you take those things in mind, uh, uh, the, 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 the notion that we can have vast differences from one district to another uh, on the number of citizens uh, actually can result in a pretty dramatic vote dilution for citizens in one part of the state rather than the other. Now, we're 50 years past Reynolds versus Sims, and so why is this issue just coming up now? Well, when Reynolds versus Sims was was uh, decided back in 1964, the the disparity across district w- was was not nearly as great as it is now. In fact, there, there probably wasn't one, and so you could you could use total population as a proxy uh, for total citizen population, uh, and you know, and maybe there were some minor. De- 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 uh, deviations from from perfect uh, uh, congruence between the two, but not much. Now it's it's rather dramatic, and and so let me put it in stark terms. Suppose you have one citizen in a district of a half a million people, and everybody else are non-citizens. Uh, uh, that person effectively get can't, his vote decides who's going to be the representative from that district. Whereas in, in the next district over, suppose every one of the people living in the district are citizens, their vote only counts for one five hundred thousandth of a vote uh, f- for that representative, and and their vote in in comparison therefore is dramatically diluted from the the weight of the vote uh, for the citizen in the next district over, and it's that disparity uh, that that uh, I think the challenge here uh, presented that that uh, and and it, and it uses the language of Reynolds versus Sims. Uh, we don't have equal numbers of voters who can vote on a proportionally equal number of officials in light of the dramatic difference uh, of, of voter or citizen population from one district to another. Well, Mr. Sines, what, what do you say in response to that? I mean, we talk about the dilution of the vote in the, in the, uh, the, the scenario that uh, Dr. So, Eastman laid out. So let, let, me, let me say several things. First, first of all, there have been non-citizens in the United States since it was formed. That's why there is a reference in the Constitution to naturalization. Second, let me make sure that everyone understands 
that while John focuses on excluding Indians, not tax, that's all the language says. There's nothing whatsoever about citizenship. And in fact, that exclusion meant that lots of non-citizens, even when the 14th Amendment was ratified, were being counted, would be counted for purposes of apportioning House districts because there were non-citizens present at that time, as there have been throughout our history. Second, it's important to note that there were lots of non-voters who were clearly contemplated and included in the decision to base apportionment on total population that included women, for example, who, as you know, were not given the right to vote in the 19th century, but had to wait until early in the 20th century. Uh, it also included, obviously, as it does today, lots and lots of children. Uh, that's a major problem for the plaintiffs. The largest group of people excluded, discounted entirely under the plaintiff's theory, is not non-citizens, but rather children under the age of 18 who are not eligible voters. And there can be as I'm sure you are aware, dramatic differences between districts in the number of children who are present um, within one district versus a neighboring district. Uh, second, I think it's important to note that while the language that was used in Reynolds versus Sims uh, may have been somewhat loose on this issue, in the 50 years since, uh, the Supreme Court has regularly, uh, not regularly, but sporadically had before it questions about total population. It has never suggested that the total population, although it is the ubiquitous practice today, as it has been for most of that period, is somehow an inappropriate basis of drawing districts. And I think that John's assertion that in 1964, there were no significant distinctions uh, between voters from one district to another is simply false. I don't think it's empirically demonstrable that that is the case. So this is an issue uh, that to the extent that the court uh, has weighed in, as it has many, many times, on redistricting at the statewide level, at the local level, has never really been raised by the court as raising any kind of constitutional concern. I think it's important to note that at bottom what the plaintiffs seek, this notion of voter equality, is never achievable because too many things change from when you measure eligible voters and draw districts. First of all, you have all of the demographic changes that affect population as well. That's differences in deaths, in births, etc. that occur. Second, with respect to eligible voters, we have regular daily changes in those who are citizens. Folks age into citizens into eligible voting, for example, when they turn 18 daily, and that's not equally distributed across any districts. Similarly, folks naturalize daily and become citizens, and that's not equalized uh, or nearly equal across districts. Finally, depending on what measure of voter population you use, voter registration changes daily, and that is not equally distributed across districts. So the notion that you can get anywhere close to something like equality between the voters in one district and another is simply false. And the final factor is this. Turnout changes district by district in every election. And it could be something as mundane as the weather that yields a change in turnout from one district to another. Or more likely, the presence of an incumbent on the ballot influences voter turnout 
in one district versus another. So the notion that you could ever arrive at a situation where every voter's vote, quote unquote, counts as much as a voter in a neighboring district is simply foolhardy. You can't get there. So the question then becomes, what should we value? Should we value representation of every constituent? Should we value telling children and non-citizens contemplating naturalization that they don't count at all unless and until they become eligible voters? Or should we value saying to everyone, you are a constituent that an elected official represents and who has to take into account your views, your needs, your interests in not just voting on legislative matters, but in serving the needs of all constituents? That's the philosophical question. But at bottom, what's at issue here is how do you interpret a constitutional amendment that was enacted in part specifically to eliminate the abominable three-fifths rule, which is the rule that in our original constitution counted African-American slaves as only three-fifths of a person for purposes of apportioning U.S. House of Representatives districts among states, and that was changed in the 14th Amendment to depart from that abominable assertion that certain human beings counted as less than a full human being in favor of the rule that we've discussed that says apportioning house districts is based on total population. I, you know, I got I to weigh in here. Tom's filibustering this, and I got to weigh in because that canard is, is just so preposterous. You were preposterous. filibustering early, John. Earlier, John, no, you've gone on I 10 minutes here without me, so without me talking it. at all. If you're you filibustering, and I'd like to get now, in because that you canard were needs to be too. You'll have your chance, John. Uh, if you'd just let me finish my sentence. All right, uh, gentlemen, let's let's have Mr. Sines uh, finish it up in a, in a sentence or two, and then uh, Dr. Eastman, let, let's get some from you after that, okay? Yes. So as I was saying, the 14th Amendment was enacted in part to eliminate the three-fifths rule. What the plaintiffs seek to do with Evanwell is implement a zero-fifths rule for children and non-citizens not yet naturalized. That is equally abominable and is not an appropriate interpretation of the Constitution. Okay, Dr. Eastman. Tom ought to know better than that. That canard. The three-fifths clause was written so that the slave owners had less representation uh, than they would have had if you had counted slaves fully, because none of those slaves were going to be allowed to vote. They would have given slave owners more representation and would have made it more difficult to get rid of slavery. So we need to get that canard off the table right from the outset. The real question here is, are we a government where we the people control the government and the sovereignty um, by who we decide is government? Or does Anybody that happens to come to this country temporarily as a visitor on a tourist visa, imagine a million people visiting Salt Lake City during the Olympics when the session is going on, when the census is going on. Should, should Utah get extra votes because they all happen to be here when the, when the census is being taken because uh, the 14th Amendment says all persons? Of course not. And so the real question is, uh, who decides the direction of the government? Is it citizens uh, or is it non-citizens who happen to be living here in this country, particularly those who are living illegally in this country. And the notion that our government has to be, uh, uh, you know, the votes of citizens have to be watered down based on the number of illegal immigrants living in one district as compared to another is, is really undermines the very notion of sovereignty. And the very first three words of the, of the, Declar- of the Constitution, which say, we the people, not, not the people of the world, but we the people of the United States are the ones that are the sovereign authority in this country. And so the challenge here is designed to try and tease out what exactly that means in how we apportion districts. Uh, And the notion that you can have massive a number of illegal immigrants in one district 
giving therefore more weight uh, to the voters in, that happen to live in that district than the actual citizen voters who live in other districts really undermines the very notion of sovereignty. Now, the real question is not whether that's true or not. It's absolutely true. The real, real question, and this is where I think Justice Scalia was going to be such a critical vote on how he came out, is does the Constitution compel treating the denominator as citizens only, uh, or does it allow states to make that judgment? When Hawaii uh, chose to use citizens or registered voters uh, instead of total population, the Supreme Court said that was okay because the difference between citizens and registered voters was not great, even though the difference between total population and registered voters was great. And it, and it said that the, the, the Hawaii could do that because it was aimed at not diluting the votes of citizens. And I think that's critically important. I'd like to tease that out and say, you know, given that and what we now know about the differential, uh, given the Reynolds versus Sims rule focusing on not diluting the voting strength of citizens, uh, then that is constitutionally compelled, at least in a circumstance which you have different, such a difference. Justice Kennedy, however, in the oral argument, suggested a third alternative, kind of a split the baby alternative. And it was, can we draw lines that take account of both total population and total citizen population and find lines that maximize or minimize the deviation on both scores? And the answer to that is yes. And I suspect the court may end up going that direction, which would suggest that Texas's plan here, which didn't take that into account at all, would be unconstitutional. As I say, we don't know where the court's going to go, and it's hard to predict given the federalism overlay to the idea ideological question here. Uh, but those are the kind of questions uh, that we ought to be asking. And they really go to the heart of what consent of the governed means in a Republican form of government such as we have. Well, I have a question uh, just, just about this. This seems like a very important interpretation that, that probably should have been, uh, you know, dealt with in, in one of the amendments to the Constitution. So I guess, you know, obviously there seems to be some room for interpretation here. Otherwise, uh, we wouldn't be here discussing the issue. So let, let me ask this question to both of you. Like, why do you think this isn't specifically spelled out to our satisfaction in, in the way that the Constitution has been amended so far? Uh, Mr. Sines, let's start with you. Why, why do I think the amendment or no amendment directly addresses this question? I think it has to do with federalism, as uh, Mr. Eastman has suggested. I, I think that until this point, there has not been an effort to ensure that states do it, all do it the same way. I will point out that in practice, they all do. Everyone uses total population today. So if federalism were to allow each state to decide based on what they're doing today, they would stick with total population. There are all sorts of practical reasons to do that. Uh, the other thing I want to say is in response to Mr. Eastman, it is we the people, it's not we the citizens, it's not we the voters. He likes to use we the people. Apparently it doesn't include uh, non-citizens, non-voters within the definition of people. The Constitution clearly does. It does in the 14th Amendment. The amendment indicates the framers knew how to distinguish between citizens because they use that term and people and persons, another term they use directly in the amendment. But what Mr. Eastman's latest statement reveals is what this is really about. It's really about an agenda related to undocumented immigrants. Practical aim of the plaintiffs may be to stem the growing political power of Latinos, including those who are immigrants within the state of Texas. In constitutional terms, it's hard to square this notion that somehow voters and citizens were prioritized over persons with both of the language of the 14th Amendment and the history at the time when so many who were non-voters, including women, 
and including as it is true today, all of those under 18, and yet the framers decided that apportioning House districts should be based on total persons. I think it's hard to square the constitutional aim with the language and history of the amendment. Dr. Eastman, uh, would you like to reply to that? Yeah, I've got to respond to that. He says it says we the people in the Constitution, not we the citizens. Uh, He's wrong about that because he ignored the last clause of the phrase. It says we the people of the United States. That, that, That doesn't mean we the people of the world who will, you know, move illegally to the United States. They don't get a vote for a reason. And if you tease out his argument fully, it would not only be that they should be counted for purposes of representation, but they ought to have a vote as well. He claims they're their constituents, and they therefore ought to have a right to representation. That means that the distinction between citizen and non-citizen is abolished And if you tease out the full implications of his position. And the notion that we are we the people of the United States and not we the people of the world uh, goes out the window. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's just not true that the 14th Amendment doesn't speak in terms of citizens. Look at Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, which deals with 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 states uh, depriving any citizen of the right to vote. When a ro- when the right to vote is denied to any citizen of voting age, at the time it was males, now it's all uh, men and women, or in any way abridged, then the representation shall be reduced. It doesn't say when the right to vote or the right of representation is denied to any person. It says to any citizen, and that's because it is citizens that direct and control the direction of the government. In a republican form of government, the distinction between citizen and and non-citizen is absolutely critical if you're going to keep the notion of sovereignty. Uh, and, and that's what this, this case uh, presents. Uh, do, do we have some notion of ongoing sovereignty where the role of citizens matters and is the distinct from, and it doesn't deprive anybody else of humanity or personhood. It just says we're citizens. And we don't have a vote in Mexico City or a vote in Paris, France, or in Rome, Italy, or in Saudi Arabia. We have a vote in the United States and are represented in the United States. And, and, and the halls of government because we are the citizens of this sovereign authority, not the citizens of somebody else. And, and, and simultaneously, people who are citizens or subject of other nations do not have a vote. This is why we have laws, for example, that prohibits foreign contributions in our political campaigns, because foreign money and foreign citizens ought not to be uh, in charge of having an influence on the outcome of our elections. And yet when I, when I have districts that are radically different between total population and citizen population, I am effectively giving a vote or a say in the direction and outcome of our government to people who are not part of our body politic, who are not part of we the people of the United States. And it is a core uh, doctrine of our Declaration of Independence that the legitimacy of government is grounded on the consent of the people who form that government, not the consent of people who are not part of that government because they are part of other governments elsewhere in the world. This is this is a very basic proposition, and it would and, and the argument being made that that people who are not in this country lawfully nevertheless have a say in the direction of our government obliterates and undermines any notion of sovereign authority in this country. That's what this case is ultimately about, uh, and it's not about trying to deprive one ethnic group or another who are citizens of a fair and equal vote. In fact, it is designed to protect the equal vote of every citizen in this country from being diluted by the use of, of, uh, uh, of a denominator in the calculation that is based on non-citizen population. And Mr. Sines. Just kind of getting back with uh, Dr. Eastman's point here. Is that your position? Is that non-citizens this, this is should you. be 
No. And that's not what this case is remotely about. This case raises nothing whatsoever to do with whether citizens alone should vote. That is the case. The question is whether those who are non-voters are nonetheless entitled to have someone who is in government view them as a constituent. That is the sole question at issue here. What that means is that when you tell certain persons, including all children under 18, including those who are not yet naturalized, that they don't count as constituents, you can bet that elected officials will not provide services to those folks. Indeed, in some cases, it may be impractical because a state senator in Texas who has many non-eligible voters in his or her district will therefore have a much larger total population in his or her district, district versus another. And he or she will be given the same resources in staff members to respond to constituent needs. You can bet that they will conclude the only constituents they need to serve are those who are eligible voters. So this conflation of voting with counting as a person for purposes of political representation simply cannot stand either as a matter of logic or practicality, but more importantly, as a matter of what the Constitution says. Once more, the Constitution says in allocating House seats among the states, a major definition of political representation, you must use the total number of persons, excluding solely a small group. Now, Mr. Eastman wants to change what that exclusion means. Unfortunately, he's stuck with what the language of the amendment is. It says total number of persons. That means that for purposes of political representation as defined by allocating House seats among the states, all persons are constituents. And that's the rule that ought to obtain and has been followed ubiquitously throughout the United States in drawing districts within the states as well. Dr. Eastman, would you like to respond to that? Well, only uh, Supreme Court has said the reason the Indians not tax clause is there. It said in the case of Elk versus Wilkins in 1884 uh, is that they are not citizens, uh, and therefore the theory is that you do not count people who are not citizens for purposes of apportionment of how we choose our government, because that would undermine the notion of consent that our Declaration of Independence is responsible. Did they did they tease out the implication of that language to context that they had not envisioned um, massive illegal immigrant populations? Of course not, uh, but they. They did confront it on the on the only issue that 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 existed at the time, and that is what you what do you do with a differential among states uh, of, of, of the population that existed at the time, which was Indians. And they said you don't count them if they are not citizens. You do count them if they are citizens. Uh, and and it's that it's the principle that led to that language uh, that suggests government. Uh, is grounded on who our citizens are, and it's citizens that are represented in the halls of Congress, not people who are in the country illegally. Uh, and now, now uh, Mr. Sines wants to focus on the fact that we give all sorts of benefits out uh, based on the population, whatever their legal status is, uh, and that may be true. And so that means we ought to, ought to uh, if we're going to take the census, he's suggesting that we're using the census numbers for reasons other than representation. And if we, and if we want to use the census, for reason others than the constitutional norm of representation, we can count two different numbers. We can count how many citizens are living in this district and how many total population. 
And if I want to spend federal resources based on total population, quite apart from the census count for purposes of representation, uh, Congress is free to do that. Um, but the question is, who governs the country? We, the people of the United States, who are the ultimate sovereign here, uh, cannot be diluted uh, w- w- without undermining the very basis of, of, of consent. And that's, I think, critically important. That's what this case presents. Um, you know, again, it's going to be very interesting, and I, my apologies, but I have to go, but it's going to be very interesting to see what the court does with it, particularly now with the added uh, difficulty uh, uh, from, from Justice Scalia's untimely demise. Well, in spirit of that, we are definitely running out of time. And so I just wanted to invite uh, both of you to share some contact information with our listeners. And that way, if they have some questions or they want to reach out to you, they can find you. Let's start with uh, Mr. Sides. You can contact me at info at maldef.org. That's I-N-F-O at M-A-L-D-E-F dot O-R-G. And Dr. Eastman. And you can see our website at claremont.org, C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T dot org. And you can reach me at info at claremont.org. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.